Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at recruiting and consulting firm RiderFlex. If you think today's tip or guest interview can help someone you know, please share this with them. And if you enjoy listening to our show, please subscribe to our channel and hit the like button on the episodes. Finally, aside from our podcast, our day job here at RiderFlex is to provide recruiting, staffing, and consulting services. You can visit riderflex.com to learn more about us and get the information on the services we provide. And now, a quick word from our sponsor and friends at Marketing 360. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Mana, thank you so much for being on the Rider Flex podcast. I appreciate it. Where where are you today? Well, I'm in Los Angeles, um, and it's a rainy, rainy day. Oh, is it? <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's raining. It's supposed to be raining for the next few days. So. Oh, okay. Is that where you live? Is that where yeah. you live now, LA? Okay. Yeah, I've been here uh, about 14 years. Yeah. Okay. Well, tell me about your, your background. I mean, where you grew up, your parents, give us some early family life stuff, if you don't mind, go for it. Um, so I was born and raised in uh, Bombay, India. Um, then I moved to South Africa when I was about eight. Okay. Um, grew up in Cape Town for a little bit. Um, lived in London for two years, Canada for about a year. And then the last 14 years in LA. Where did you graduate high school before you went to college? Yeah, where'd you graduate? Uh, that was uh, Cape Town. In Cape Town. Okay, so you were in high school in, in South Africa, basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Well, how did you go to school in, in Cleveland? I saw that you got your degree from a school in Cleveland. How'd that happen? Yeah, I did my master's. I did my um, master's in business in uh, at Case Western. In Cleveland, yeah. Were you and, living? Uh, were you living in Cleveland, or why'd you pick that school? I'm just curious. I got a good scholarship. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, and also yeah. Uh, they have a really good law school, so I did I my see. masters in law. I see. At the same I time. see. Yeah. yeah. I see. What'd your folks do? Tell me about your mom and dad. Um, so my dad um, was just like me is just like me. Um, he has been a serial entrepreneur all his life and never worked for anyone else. Uh, he had a job for a month and got fired when he was 21 <laughs> um, and then never ever tried to work for anyone else. Um, but he was also into social work. So he did a lot of um, work for underprivileged uh, communities. Okay. So I got exposed to it at a very young age. And um, he was, you know, he's exactly like me. Uh, my mom has passed away. She had cancer for about 10 years. Oh, I'm and, sorry. Yeah, so she passed away uh, 2010. Yeah. Okay, 2010. You were already grown and out of the house, of course, by then, but um, Yeah, okay. but I did actually go back uh, in her last few months. Um, I was there, nursed her. Um, we were, she was at home. And so I was looking after her in the last two months before she passed away. Yeah. That is so hard to do. Right. So she was probably put on hospice or, or whatever towards the end. Yeah. That's very difficult. Uh, we could probably do a full episode just on that topic, right? How, how hard that is, but 
I guess, yeah. um, do you feel grateful that you were get, you got to be there at, at, at the end and be with her? Those oh, last yeah, absolutely. I mean, she spent, uh, she was a homemaker all her life. And my dad was kind of gone doing his own thing. So mm -hmm. she raised three kids, really like mm -hmm. a single mom would, you know. And then when we grew up, we had our own lives and we left. And that was around the time that she had cancer. So mm -hmm. she struggled and fought cancer really um, herself with my dad. My dad mm -hmm. was always there with her. They had a long marriage, 35 years. Um, and then... So I was gone for most of it. And then I remember the last, the year before she passed away, she called me and I was with the American Red Cross. And she said, oh, does American Red Cross do um, mercy killing, euthanasia? And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you saying? Because I had no idea what she was dealing with. I mean, oh, wow. I didn't know at what, I mean, it was really advanced at that point, but they were, not hiding, but not really telling us everything. Um, you know, she was in India at that point, and I was here in the U.S. Um, so I didn't, I didn't feel good about it. I was like, oh my god, this woman spent her entire life for her kids, and now that she really needs us, we're all gone. Uh, my brother was in New Zealand. My sister's been here uh, for the last twenty years. Okay. So then I, I took a one-way flight, and I was like, I was just, you know, just stay with her. Mm -hmm. And but she passed away two months later. Yeah. Mm. Your brothers. You so you had one sister and one brother, so three kids all together. Okay. Yes. What What does your brother and sister do? So my sister um, is a vice president in a bank. Uh, wow. She lives in Ohio, and my brother is a chef. So he used to live in New Zealand, and then he went back. He's with my dad now. Yeah. I see. Okay. And your dad is still in Bombay. He is. Yeah. He moved back. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very good. All right. Well, thank you for some of that overview. So when you, so you had the entrepreneurial bug uh, early on, right? From your dad, you, 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 you kind of had that inside you. Did you know what you wanted to do? I guess, did you think you were going to be a lawyer and then you switched gears? Tell me what happened there. Um, that's a great question. <laughs> so I, I feel like I knew that I always wanted to make a lot of money <laughs> and help a lot of people and um, never work for anyone else. But you know how once you start growing up, um, you get influenced by what people are saying around you, people who you look up to, what they're doing. And my dad was really gone for most of my life. So I didn't get to spend a lot of time with him, but I did look up to him and I wanted to be like him, but I didn't know what that meant. And uh, somehow in the first few years of my life, I mean, looking back, I would never go to business school, to be honest, I would never go to law school. Really? I would have just jumped into what I'm doing right now uh, at an early age, because I found my way after a ton of student loan debt. And um, ultimately not using any of what I was studying in what I'm doing right now. You know? Yeah, I gotcha. Okay. How did you get the passion for, so you wanted to help people, you wanted to, you knew that you wanted to do something to kind of make a difference in the world, but you also knew like that you needed to make money, right? Both. It's got to yes, be a little bit yes. of both, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you have to sustain yourself and even running a nonprofit is running a business, isn't it? It's the business of helping people. So mm -hmm. you have to make sure that it's sustainable and you can't just survive on donations. <laughs> you have to make right. sure that there's a revenue stream. 
um, to running your nonprofit. You um, you were working though as an employee for the American Red Cross, right, up until 2014. And what did you just come home one day and you you're like, okay, I I don't know, I'm I don't want to I don't want to be an employee. I want to do my own thing. How did it happen? Um, so I graduated uh, out of law school, business school in 2007 which is the year of the Great Depression. <laughs> the economy had crashed, there were no jobs. And I remember sitting in a Starbucks um, here in LA and I was sending out thousands of resumes every single day, uh, no one getting back to me. And I was like, oh my God, I have all these degrees and you know, no one wants me. Um, and then I decided to go volunteer for the Red Cross. Um, so I started volunteering for them and I see anything I do, I kind of, it think it's my job to do it oh. right. You know? Mm -hmm. So even though I was a volunteer, I was taking it a little too seriously and, um, they liked it. So they offered me a job, uh, within four months of me volunteering wow. for them. Okay. Very and, good. Yeah. And then, um, um, I started at an entry level position, but within three or four years, I became the COO for the Red Cross. I was probably the youngest COO uh, at the American Red Cross. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Um, but what I realized doing that work was, it was very fascinating for me, what they do. And if anyone wants to be in a nonprofit, they must work with the Red Cross because it's mm. amazing training. Okay. Um, Good to know. What I what I realized was um, I wasn't happy. Everything looked great on paper, right? Everything. I had a great paying job. Uh, mm -hmm. People liked me. I liked everyone else. I liked what we were doing, but I never got to experience what Red Cross really does mm -hmm. because I was in the office 6 a.m., 6 p.m., fundraising and running the organization. And I, you know, three, four years into it, I realized that that's not what I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to be out in the field, in the trenches, um, okay. experience what people do, how people live, travel, adventure. That's all I wanted. So gotcha. I quit Red Cross. The very next day I quit. Um, and they offered me uh, a pay raise. They're like, why don't you stay? <laughs> we'll give you a pay raise. I'm like, well, it's not about that. It's not about money. And I realized that it's really not about money for me. Um, it's about experiences. It's about um, following my passion and my passion lays in uh, human experience, you know, seeing how people live in different countries and how privileged we are here in the US. Right. Um, yeah. So I just, I wanted to do that, you know, so I quit Red Cross and I founded GIFT Global Initiative. Just before that I did, um, I was kind of lost for a year. So I didn't, I didn't start GIFT right away. So in that one year after I left Red Cross, I was, um, I was, I was trying to do fashion designing with, uh, with a friend of mine. And that's why. Okay. So that's why I saw the pictures of the models and dresses on, on, yeah, I think I saw it yeah. on maybe your Facebook or something that. So that's what that was. Okay. Yeah. So I what see. I did was I, I was sketching. So I was making dresses because I okay. was lost. Right. <laughs> I didn't know what I wanted to do. <laughs> um, and someone and how thought, old were, how, what were you like? 22, 23? How old no, were you? I was 26. I was about 26. Oh, you were about 26. Were you, were you married, kids, anything like no, that? Or? No, no, Okay. okay. All right. Um, so, you're, so you're, I, yeah. Yeah. So I was sketching and putting my sketches online and 
um, a production house, a fashion designing production house from London saw those designs and they reached out and they say, why don't you come show your designs at the London Fashion Week? <laughs> I was okay. like, what is that? Yeah. Um, so I did that. I ended up showing, um, you know, I mean, I had no idea how to do it. <laughs> so I had to go from taking my designs to making it into a dress. But mm. I figured all of that within three or four months. And we, wow. I had like nine, nine or 10 different designs that I showed at London Fashion Week. Uh, that cool. was 2015, yeah. And it sold out. I mean, we had um, probably about 500 pieces total, but it all sold out during the Fashion Week. And I was like, really? Wow. Yeah, I was surprised. Um, and then um, some people from HSN, uh, QVC agents, work with these different channels they started reaching out to see if i wanted to uh take my designs to ages okay. and uh, qvc the tele okay. you know telemarketing companies mm -hmm. um but i wasn't really feeling it you know i was i was like this is good and thank god it worked out um but i don't know if this is what i want to do i wasn't feeling the vibe of the fashion right. industry yeah all right. Um, and you just you didn't know, like it, huh? Did you just didn't like it? No, because I felt I, a lot of people were picking the dresses they were wearing it, and what I realized that some of them wouldn't give you credit for wearing your dresses because you're not paying them to do that. And I found that extremely ungrateful. You know, people, women who are very successful models or actresses, they would wear the dresses, but they would not say that the designer is so and so because you're not paying them. Oh, I see. Okay. All right. You have to pay people. You have to pay influencers to actually say that they're wearing a dress. Mm. And I get mm. the business side of it, but I think I was more into the human side of it. To me, it's like if, let's say if I act in a movie and I don't get credit for that, how would I feel? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's I see. how I felt as a designer mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. I have to actually pay you, but I didn't ask you to wear my dress. You picked it, but you are not saying that. It's by so-and-so because you're not paid to do that. And I found that, that I mean, I met a lot of amazing people in the fashion industry, mm -hmm. um, but there were, there's also that side to it where, you know, it's, it's really money-minded. And yeah. that wasn't one of my core values. Okay, so okay. I decided yeah. to, I, I did a lot, a lot of licensing. So I started licensing um, the designs out to bigger companies. Oh. All right. Um, but during that time, I was still engaged out of pocket doing um, my social work, <laughs> going to Mexico, working with kids who had cancer, sex trafficking victims. I was still doing that. But I was doing were you doing that? Were you doing that just on your own or, or was was GGI already established? Or you no, just it wasn't. Okay. OK, I was doing it. I was raising money for um, other nonprofits who were in the field. Um, I of, see. And okay. uh, human trafficking. Um, I was with American Cancer Society, but all on volunteer basis. I was just helping okay. out right. because I was always leaning, you know, my spirit, I guess, knew that I had to go that way. So even if mm. I was doing fashion, I was doing all these other things. One side of me was always in this work. Mm. I see. And, okay. Um, all right. And obviously along the way, I just, I just don't like how nonprofits are run. I don't like how they market. I always feel like nonprofits exploit exploitation. And I don't, I don't, I'm not that, I don't have that mindset. So mm. I wanted to create something which is more 
um, empowered, you know, an organization that would do the work that other nonprofits do, but it's from a um, prevention standpoint or um, empowerment uh, per perception, you know. I wanted to change how people look at nonprofits because nonprofits okay. are not poor. <laughs> they make a lot of money. Um, so, yeah, so I decided, you know what, this is it. I have to be in this because you're going to start your. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Were you a solo? Were you the solo founder or did you have co founders for Global I have a, Gift? I have a co founder, yes. Um, oh. So, Keith Kirkwood, he, uh, Keith is, he came from the government side. So, he used to be in the LA City Council. And he didn't like how government is so restricted in a lot of ways because obviously we have democracy. So if you have to get a sidewalk done, <laughs> you know, 10 people have to vote for it and it never gets done. And he felt restricted and he thought, oh, nonprofits is a better way of doing things because you okay. can raise money mm -hmm. and get the things done, which are, you know, there's less fraud and abuse if your heart is in the right place. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And did you, and so you and him both had a little bit of experience raising money a little bit. So you had, yeah, I mean, I was with the Red Cross for five years, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I okay. How did you, how did you pick, how did you pick global gift initiative or how, how did GGI, like how did that? The name? Yes. I know. No idea. We wanted something that was global which has the word global in it because I never wanted to say local. <laughs> I wanted to expand it, make sure we could be in different countries. And it's just, I don't know, it just came about, you know? We were just sitting and brainstorming names and I was like, oh, I like that name. And then I, I realized that my name, Mana, means gift, but that didn't come to me until later. <laughs> Someone asked okay, me that Okay, okay, okay. oh, it's... I said it wrong too. It's it's gift global initiative, by the way. And for the listeners, it's ggiusa.org, right? Yes. Ggiusa.org. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. And so give what is give us the overview. Give me the three-minute overview of gift global initiative. Tell me, go for it. What does it do? So gift global initiative is a diplomacy humanitarian organization. We are in about 17 countries. And all our programs are geared towards prevention, uh, empowerment, making sure that families who live in underprivileged areas don't have to rely on outside entities like governments and other nonprofits to provide for their own kids. Mm. So every program, every initiative that we do is meant to empower them so that they can, you know, it's um, giving a hand up, not a handout. I see. Okay. And you raise money from any particular so areas? or yep. We raise money several different ways. Um, just like any other nonprofit, uh, we raise money by asking for money, which is fundraising. Um, we raise money through grants, government grants, public okay. grants, okay. Um, okay. public and private grants. Uh, we also raise money through revenue streams, meaning we create a business model inside the nonprofits. So that's what we're working on for this year, um, is where you provide a service or product and then you get paid for it, just like any business would. So that becomes the revenue side of the nonprofit. Mm. How, so, many how many uh, employees do you have total? So, great question. So we have a very small team. We have 10 people and rest all our operations are run by volunteers 
Okay, very good. Do you have a particular area that you have a passion for, whether it's fresh water or, you know, sewage systems or trafficking or like what, what's your specific passion? So one of the programs that I really absolutely love, um, which we are, we are doing that in about 10 countries right now. It's called Sports for Solar. Um, so what that program is about is um, in, let's, let's take an example of South Africa. So there is this community that has 4,000 homes. Uh, it is built right next to the Nelson Mandela Museum, which they have spent a lot of money on that. But this 4,000 uh, household community has no postal address. So they call an um, informal settlement. They don't have water, they don't have electricity, they don't have absolutely nothing. So we picked, yeah, ex I mean. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just gonna let that, I'm just gonna let that sink in for a minute. I just want that to sink in for the listeners for a minute. You're telling me that next to the Nelson Mandela Memorial or museum. Yes. There's 4,000 people living there with no water and electricity. 4,000 households. So there are more people, but there are oh. 4,000 homes. Do they have sewage? What do they do for they sewage system? What, what, how, how does their sewage work? It's all over the place. I mean, you just go, you walk through it. And if you go on our Instagram or if you go on my um, my Instagram, you'll see those pictures and videos from the village. Uh, it's not a village, it's in Johannesburg. So it's a big city. Um, but absolutely, I mean, these, these people live in horrific conditions you know there's no light you'll see the kids have burn marks because they use candles they use kerosene wood and the shacks will go up in fires every few weeks um so mm. what we do is let's say let's take an example of this community and we run a lot of our programs there with sports for solar we appoint uh, coaches who would coach kids who are interested in sports like soccer tennis they coach them throughout the year and then twice a year, we have a sports day where about 500 to 1,000 kids will come together. They play, they compete. And instead of going home with plastic trophies, they go home with um, portable solar light. Uh -huh. So some of these families have never had, they have, they have zero light. So it's a big deal for them. It might seem like a small thing, but it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. A small yeah. uh, so, so. <laughs> Um, we so they go home with the solar light. It helps the kids travel safe to school because a lot of uh, South Africa has really bad public um, transport. So they mm. the kids don't have school buses like we do over here. Mm. Um, so they walk to school, especially kids who live in these settlements. They will walk three four miles a day to go to school on empty mm. stomach. You know? mm. Um, mm. So the solar light will keep them safe because they can put that in their bag, the backpack, I see. and it I charges. See. Uh, the businesses can stay open longer if they have a light. Um, you know, the women can travel safe. So that just a small light can do so much. But mm. instead of just giving it away, the kids are earning it for. I like that. I, that's a yeah. that's a great idea. Why why the light? Why did you pick lighting as as a as a target? Is that because other profit other nonprofits are focused on water or sanitation or whatever, and that was a you saw that as an opportunity. Well, it's because, I, it's because how many, the number of medical kids. So we have a medical fund that pays for medical expenses of kids who live in these areas. Because a lot okay. of times, if you go to the U.S.-Mexico border, we do a lot of work by, by the U.S.-Mexico border ah. as well. Okay. And um, right in Tijuana, there's a community of about 1,000 homes. 
same situation. They are stealing light because they don't have light. Uh, they don't have water. They don't have running water. And it is, um, there are about a thousand homes. Every home has five to six kids. Um, a lot of these moms are single moms. They're teen moms. Uh, many of them are uh, either uh, trafficked or they get into prostitution because they don't have any other way of you know, mm. providing for the family. Uh, mm. Most of the families don't have a dad. The dads are either in the prison or there's just no dad. So we work in those communities. And uh, one of the things that you notice is because of the, because of not having light, they use kerosene, they use wood, mm. and they live in these makeshift shacks. And every few days, the shacks will go up in fire and the kids get stuck in it. And there were horrific cases of kids been burned alive, kids dying from it. So a simple solar light, which is 10 bucks, $10, can solve that problem. You know, they'll have light, they don't need to use yeah. mm. uh, other sources of light. Yeah. Mm, that's a great idea. Is somebody manufacturing those little lights for you as part of their donation? Is that what? Yeah. So we don't bring anything from other countries, meaning if you are doing a program in Mexico, we try to buy locally. Okay. Uh, if So in South Africa, we have a, um, a man who actually started his own solar company and uh, he's amazing. So we buy from them. Uh, uh, it's local. He's providing jobs to about 100 people in South Africa. That's uh, that's wonderful. Is it, it? It has to be emotionally difficult for you to go to these places, see these things, and then go back to L.A. with your regular life in your regular house and where you just flip on the light switch whenever you want to. Right. Or you flush the toilet or you turn on fresh water. Is that hard for you emotionally? Do you have a hard time with that? Um, you I think you develop your muscle for that. You know, mm. it's like working out. So initially you have a lot of empathy. People who get into this work are very empathetic. Mm. And there's a difference between being empathetic and being compassionate, right? So when you are empathetic, you're feeling it, you're drained, you're crying, right? When you're compassionate, mm. there's a wall between you and what's happening. So mm. you can act, you can change, you can, you can help, you can empower. Um, mm. But the more you do this work, it's, it's the same with um, animal rescue. You go to a shelter day one and you can't stand there for 15 minutes because it's so unbearable. You know, you mm -hmm. feel if you're an animal lover, you cry because all these dogs are been abandoned. Stay there for a month and every day you can stay longer and longer and longer because you start developing your muscle for the work. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you find it um, frustrating that a lot of people in the U.S. just take life for granted and and they did they when you see people in, the, in this country complaining about things little things you know based on where you've been uh, how do you react to them what do you just shake your head and i mean what how, how does that feel when you see somebody complaining about something silly you knowing yeah. knowing that there's I a child we, that, yeah i i believe that we need a, a change in our education system here in the u.s where kids are exposed to how other kids live in different countries at a very young age mm -hmm. uh, to make them more global when i grew up i grew up in different countries and I remember watching all kinds of news. I used to watch CNN, Fox, uh, BBC. I didn't watch like local news growing up. So I knew what was happening in different parts of the world as a child. Mm 
Mm. And a lot of kids do that growing up. In the US, you'll see everything is so home-based. You know, you ask, people don't know certain countries, like you name a country in Africa, and what is that? Right. I mean, it's, it's like, oh my God, like you are an educated person, you don't know this Burkina Faso exists. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's a country in Africa. So um, yeah, I mean, first of all, we definitely need that change where our kids are exposed to how other people live because we are so blessed. We are so blessed in this country. So true. Um, and all you have to do is cross the border. You don't even have to fly to Africa. Just go to Mexico, go to Tijuana, and don't go there to have a vacation. Go into these communities to see how people live and then come back. And I think this will feel like heaven. <laughs> I remember the very first time we went to vacation in Cancun and we flew into the airport, you know, across the border. And when they put you on the little bus from the airport to go to the resort, you, you kind of have to drive through some some areas that are that are pretty rough, right? As they're as they're taking you to the resort. And I remember thinking, wow, okay, this is a completely different world like i you know it, I, we just we live in this little sheltered bubble in, in the u.s we just have no idea most people most people have no idea how other children are living in these countries yeah i mean the the place that we work in mexico that slum and I, people take offense when i say slum but it really is a slum okay um and people it's controlled by the cartel the mexican mm. cartel so it's not mm. just it's not just disgusting to live there, it's unsafe. And we've been working there seven years. And um, obviously the cartel now knows us. They know that we come there, we help the kids, we work with the families uh, and they're always there. Um, so when we have events, you'll see the members of the cartel which just hang up. They'll be there, keep an eye. Um, so, I mean, you just have to, you know, you just have to ignore that and do what you do. Have you ever been have you ever been threatened or shot at or anything? I think the people kind of protect us over there because I remember once we were locked out of a um, we were supposed to use a place to teach kids self defense and we showed mm -hmm. up in the morning and it was locked out and I know what was going on <laughs> it was, um, but then the the family set up tents for us so we could teach the kids self-defense because the moms and the dads and the families know what we are trying to do is good for their kids, you know. Mm -hmm. um, they don't want their kids to live in that situation, I guess. So uh, you're always protected by the people you're helping. But again, it can only go so far, especially if you're against like the cartel. You just have to like <laughs> be do quiet you ever, and do your job. <laughs> do you ever have... Uh the feeling that you're never going to be able to fix it. Like it's the, the, the problem is just so massive worldwide with water or trafficking or whatever. Do you ever feel like you're just battling uphill and there's no, there's no fixing it and you, you make no, a little bit of a difference. No, I don't because I'm not no. trying to fix it. You know, I'm oh. not trying to fix it. I'm just trying to help one person at a time. So even if I mm. help one child a year, that's fine. You know, uh -huh. uh, it, you have to be very, I guess very clear about your vision when you get into this work you cannot i mean like you said you know you could really get lost and be like mm. this is hopeless like right. you see like these uh corporate nonprofits will pay millions of they raise millions of dollars and they pay millions of dollars to celebrities to become ambassadors so they can bring in more money and very little work gets done Oof. and 
I speak for a lot of these nonprofits. They invite me as consultants, you know, and and it's it's in, I mean that is what enrages me is people trying to people don't understand that you have to be really mindful about what you're giving and who you're giving it to. Mm-hmm. It's not about just giving. It's not if you have ten dollars and you go to a nonprofit and give it, great. But do you know what they're going to do with it? No one's asking that question. You ask those questions to grassroots level nonprofits who are actually doing the work, but you're okay donating that amount of money to corporate nonprofits thinking that they have their thing together. (laughs) They don't. They actually spend a lot of their money on brand ambassadors and and they piggyback on smaller nonprofits to get the work done. Ah, sounds to me like you have a real passion about some of these nonprofits that aren't being (laughs) ran correctly. Maybe, maybe your business should be a consulting firm that goes around and, and teaches these nonprofits how they should behave and act and spend money. Well, I'd rather teach the donors, you know, I, okay. how people okay. run their business is not my business, but I can teach the, I mean, that, that is one of the roles, you know, I do speak a lot at events. I, this is what I'm doing with you right now in this podcast too, is really the role of an educator. Uh, for people because there are so many people who do good there's so many people who want to give you know and especially in the U.S. like we are ranked number one in terms of giving Mm. but it's not mindful giving it's Mm. just I mean I can tell you situations with just gift you know there are people who will donate let's say five thousand dollars a year for a child because they feel passionate about helping a child the next year they don't do it but they don't even let us know until the last day the child has to go to school and they're like, oh, we can't do it this year. It's like, yeah, but you just didn't tell us on time. So now we don't have time to find another sponsor. Mm. So it's called mindful giving. If you can give year after year, that's fine. But mindful giving is where you give and you communicate, you you follow up, you ask questions. That's mindful giving. Mm. I don't know how many people do that. Have you done any TED Talks or any conferences on mindful giving? That seems like a, you know. I speak a lot. (laughs) I do a lot of conferences and events, um, especially in countries who are not, you know, who where giving is not a regular thing. I mean, the governments might give, but the people for them, it's like, oh, we don't want to give or giving is like looked down upon. You know, they feel like if you give, you don't talk about it. And one of the things if you do give, if you do, do a good thing, a good act, you should talk about it because then you inspire other people to do the same, mm. you know? So yeah, we do speak a lot at events. If you had the power on planet earth to distribute wealth more evenly to impoverished you know, nations, would you? Would you would you take wealth from some people and spread it around to poor countries no. if you had the power? No, I wouldn't do that. I, no. What I would do is the people who are underprivileged and poor to create some kind of, um, we do have a program like that. It's called GGI Works. Um, it's creating jobs for these people. It's not about taking from someone and giving it to someone else. That, doesn't work that way you know you because what you do need is a sustainable system where I can give you housing free housing but if you don't have a job how are you going to keep 
take care of that housing, right? How are you going to provide for your kids? How are you going to eat? So it all starts with people working. It all mm. starts with creating jobs. So, and we do that with GGI Works. We teach these women uh, in Mexico, in Africa, women who were, um, when we started working in these communities, these women were either trafficked or they would get into prostitution. That was the only thing they knew. So now we run classes like stitching, sewing, all kinds of you know urban agriculture classes so they can grow their own food, they can stitch, they can sell, we teach them e-commerce. So they can sell their clothes, they can sell whatever they're making and make some money at least, you know. And that's what's needed is mm. jobs creation. Mm, very good. Very good, Mana. How about this? I want to ask you, when you come across criminal activity like like human trafficking, when you see it or you 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 find out people that are involved, what do you do? Do you guys work with the authorities to inform them or how do you attack that? I'm just curious. Um, so let me, let me tell you my, about 15 years ago when I was um, doing this work out of pocket and raising money for nonprofits who were helping sex trafficking victims, um, I wanted to see what they were doing with the money. So I found myself on a uh, police raid that was going in to rescue victims of sex okay. trafficking. Okay. And, I, and I thought that it will be 17, 16 year old women or men, you know? So we go in there and we found three and four year old babies being trafficked, groomed into trafficking. And that was an mm -hmm. eye opener for me because I didn't oh. know that they start kids that early. And some of these children who are three, four, five years of age, they are sexually assaulted many times a day by the trafficker to groom them into trafficking. That's how trafficking works. And then when they grow up and they're 16 and 17, they don't know anything different. They just think that's their life. Okay, they think that this is it for them. So um, we used to work with the cops. We, there's a human trafficking task force in the US in every city. So if you come across a suspicious activity, you can always report it to them. They're incredibly effective. Like they are 24 hours online trying to bust all these like scams and trafficking, uh, traffickers reaching out to children online because now trafficking has changed. And I'll tell you what, people, cartels have gone from selling drugs to selling women and kids because they make more money doing it. Uh, you can sell drugs once and you can sell a woman many times. You can sell a child for many years and they make more money of that. But our human trafficking task force in every city, all you have to do is just reach out to them. They're amazing. With GIFT, we work on prevention. So um, we come across more cases where kids are in areas which have cartel activity or they could fall victims to the cartel, but they are not. At that point, they're not. So we try to work more with kids who are not exploited, but they find themselves in situations where they would be if you don't bring them resources to get out of it. Does that make sense? How do you? How in the world do you rehabilitate a, a ten-year-old girl that's been sexually assaulted since she was three? I mean, that is a I would imagine a very difficult task. Yeah, I have a child. Um, he was uh, four, I believe that when when we rescued him was four. He is now in uh, New York State University. And um, 
And I recently, I think two years ago, received a letter from him uh, wow. thanking me. And he said that wow. he at some point will probably get into this work, but he's not ready. He doesn't want mm. to get back to it. And that just shows you that he was rescued when he was four or five. So, mm. and, you know, he had enough that he's 18 or 17, I believe now. But um, it's, it's, it's not mm. possible. You know, there's, I guess there's, there's a lot of bad things people can do on, on, on the planet. There's a lot of bad things people can do overall. But I, I must say, like sexually assaulting a three-year-old has got to be one of the lowest things you could do as a human being. I, I just can't think of anything much worse, really. I mean, if I, if I, I couldn't be a cop doing that because if, if I was a cop and I raided a room and I saw a man sexually assaulting a three-year-old, I'd probably just shoot him on the spot. I mean, I, I, I don't, I couldn't do it because I would just shoot him. I would just yeah. shoot him right there. Yeah. Human <laughs> beings are not the same as their behavior though. You know, the people who do these acts have been through some kind of abuse or something in their life, which have, you know, which is why they're there. And trust me, when I started doing this work, I was enraged. Like I wanted these people to like, not see yep. them ever again and i mean right. any normal human being would say that right it's like right. how can you do right. that to a child yeah. so i got an opportunity to sit on a um, prison commission which was human rights for prisoners and i thought a lot about it i was like i don't think i want to go in and speak with people that have seen right. commit all these crimes but mm. i did take up that i did take up that commission role because i wanted to go into these prisons unannounced not just to see if the, there were human rights violations against the prisoners, but to understand what makes a person do what they do to a three-year-old. Right, yes. And um, I got to spend a lot of time with people who were isolated in the prison system, who were actually put into isolation because they were attacking other prisoners, because that was my job, to go in and check on them and got to speak with a lot of these people. A lot of them are manipulators, so they're really good at mind games. Uh, many of them have been in situations themselves. They were abused or they lived in these communities in these you know, cartel, um, mm. uh, in, in the cartels, literally. Mm. Mm. So a child who has been exposed to that kind of crime at an early age, what do you expect? What happens to them when they grow up? They do the same to another human being. Uh, I'll tell you a, a story of this little boy, uh, Jesus. Uh, I met him when he was eight and in Tijuana. And he was um, with a single mom who used to be a drug dealer and his sister, older sister. And the first time I met Jesus, I saw him pick up a little puppy and slam the puppy down. Like he was literally trying to kill the puppy. And I was like, wow, like I've never seen an eight-year-old do that. So. I started talking to them and we started working with the family. What I found was the mom used to take both the kids with her when she would do her drug dealings. And the kids had seen the mom get sexually assaulted and raped many times, many times at that early age. He was seven and eight when I met him. Um, we were able to get her a job. Uh, the kids started going to school and you can change things around, but you have to do it in a way where it's a family unit. You can't just you can't just take a child away from the family and try to do it. You have to make sure that the mom she has a job now and the kids are in school, so mm. they turned around their life. I don't know if the mental scars will ever go, 
they definitely need some kind of mental health mm. um, help. But at least you can, you know, save the rest of their lives by mm. taking them out of that situation. You know, but if we didn't give it to Jesus when he was that young, he would definitely grow up and do the same to some other child or woman. You know, I can just tell by visiting with you that you definitely have built up a, a, a not a wall, but you have you have a shield to protect your emotions a little bit so that you can charge forward with your initiative. Right. I, I just, I would be crying all the time. I, I, like you said, I guess you, you know, over time you, you build up a resistance to, to that a little bit so that you can get the job done without overreacting emotionally. I know I, I do a lot of, med- I teach meditation just, okay. to, you know, I actually spend a lot of time in consciousness studies and um, okay. laws of vibration and I teach teachers who teach meditation mm. so that helps me with my okay. own refueling <laughs> yeah I, you know it, it, just like you said a few times already on the on the episode we are just so blessed being in in the United States and not and so many people just haven't seen all of these things uh they uh, we take things for granted every single day we get up we turn on the light we turn on the faucet flush the toilet we turn on the heat we turn on the air conditioner all these little things we just take for granted (laughs) yeah and then we complain about a cup of coffee and i was telling someone because they said to me you know i can't donate right now i'm not in a place to donate i said you know one dollar one dollar is a really healthy meal for someone for three days in africa three days Mm. for a child Mm. so that is you probably spend like 15 bucks on coffee every day right Not, and we don't even think about it like oh that's just 15 dollars or five dollars you know um i went to cape verde which is a small uh, island country in africa and extremely poor very poor country beautiful country and we went to the school and they had 65 kids little kids and their monthly um monthly expense for food the school provides them food because they come from really poor families and the kids go home and they're empty stomach like they don't have food 60 dollars a month six zero 60 dollars a month can provide food for 60 kids in that school for a month wow wow these countries are they so i don't want to get i don't want to go down a rabbit hole here but is it because there's no resources there there's no minerals there's no are, are the countries not developed because there's nothing of value there, like like oil or or, or mining or, or whatever? Like I, I, you know, I don't. Why are they so? Well, these, well, Africa is one of the richest continents in the world. It's really rich in natural resources. It's incredibly rich. Okay. But the income gap is also really too much. Like the people at the top are extremely rich and then they have you have a very poor um you know lower class there's no middle class and um there is a lot of corruption and that's what keith uh, my co-founder you know his perspective was so important for me because you know i'll tell you this um when that explosion happened in lebanon i think it was the last year or two years ago uh where the entire seaport exploded in the root Uh, a lot of people died we were there seven days after the explosion with aid 
And my team spent about 24 hours a day for seven days to get in touch with embassies and governments to see if they would provide aid directly to the people. There was a lot of donations that were going into either the Red Cross but the Lebanese Red Cross, right? And um, I remember reaching out to the German embassy and I said, there are three hospitals with kids who have cancer and the hospitals are completely demolished because of the explosion, it's gone. The kids are sitting in the rubble, they need treatment, they need medical aid. Can you reach out to all these other nonprofits, the Lebanese Red Cross, for instance, and say, can you provide some of the medical aid that we gave you, meaning the German embassy gave them to mm. these hospitals? Don't give mm. it a gift, give mm. it directly to the hospital. The answer wasn't a negative. <laughs> because all people, so this is where the mindful giving comes into play, because when you have $10 to donate and you give it to a nonprofit, Especially in times of disaster, there are two things which are happening. One is transitional aid, which is the first one month, a few weeks after the disaster strikes. You need food, medical care, all those things. Then there's recovery, which is rebuilding the city. So all, if all your money goes to a nonprofit that only does transitional aid, Red Cross doesn't do rebuilding. See? I see. So if you are giving all your money to a nonprofit that only does one thing, there's not much money left for the other thing. And then the nonprofits who are in that side, that phase struggle mm. because a lot of grassroots level nonprofits, nonprofits do the rebuilding recovery work, you know, and that's the other thing too, like the, this is where I, I said to you, I think nonprofit industry exploits exploitation because anytime a disaster strikes or there's a child that was exploited, we can show you that and raise a lot of money. If I show you a child, there was a child from Morocco that I was helping. He was beaten up, beaten up so bad by his dad and his dad killed his older sister. So we were trying to move the mom and the child away from the dad and the dad went to prison for a year, one year. So when I posted that, that kid's photograph, we raised a lot of money for the kid, we did. But because we showed a child that was exploited. Now mm. I post a lot of, if you go to my Facebook or my LinkedIn, you see, I post a lot of kids who are in school and they look yes. healthy, yes. but they all live in these communities. They live yeah. in South Africa and Mexico and they are in school through our school sponsorship program. And I always ask people to help with school sponsorships because you don't want the child to get exploited and then run and try to help the child. I see. The whole Very idea good. is to do it before something mm -hmm. happens to them. Mm -hmm. And there are not many nonprofits trying to do that. Mm. Very good. Okay. I love that overview. You know, you're so right. I think probably 90% of Americans are not mindful donators, right? They don't, they just, like you said, they just send some money to the Red Cross or whatever. They take their clothes down to Goodwill or whatever. I mean, they don't really investigate and look at what they're doing with their donation dollars. And, and the governments will take the tax dollars and they're sending aid, but the aid goes to coming back to your earlier question about why these countries are so poor, because the government aid that goes from US, for instance, the United States sent out a lot of money to Africa for COVID relief. Okay. In, I, I think in 2019 or 20, I didn't follow for this year, but they did in 2020. The 4,000 uh, household community in Johannesburg, the kids were dying of hunger because they didn't see any of that money come down to them, any of it, not even a penny. So I don't know what happened to that money. Mm. You know? And when governments do 
aid work if the money goes from one government to the other. And if it's going to a country like this, I, I can almost guarantee you that that's going to sit somewhere up uh, in someone's bank account, some mm -hmm. politician somewhere is getting mm -hmm. really rich. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have a passion. You definitely have a passion for following the money, money trail. I can tell that you're when you see a, a foundation or a nonprofit, I can tell that you're very skeptical and careful and you're watching you want to know where the money's going because you've seen it go the wrong direction probably many times i'm guessing yeah and i also i've also seen how words get twisted with the nonprofits. you know they could be asking you to donate blood but they're saying you donate blood to us we sell it <laughs> wow <laughs> So oh, wow. you have to be really mindful about what you're doing when you give. And I want people to give more, but it's really easy. I would say start with volunteering with, for a nonprofit. You know, give them your time and see what they're How doing. about they start with how about they start with gift? How about they just go to gGIUSA.org? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they can. I mean, with any nonprofit, that's why I did with Red Cross. You know, it, it teaches you so much about that nonprofit that you can almost defend it. Uh, if you think they're doing amazing work or leave them if they're not doing, but you will never find out unless you spend some amount of time either volunteering for them or getting to know the highest level of management. And it's impossible to do that in corporate nonprofits. You mm -hmm. know, how many CEOs of corporate nonprofits do you see in the field? Yeah, no. <laughs> I, was at the, I was at the Red Cross and I was never in the field. I was the mm -hmm. highest level of management, never mm -hmm. in the field mm -hmm. because it's, it's a corporate structure. With GIFT, go through my, my social media. I'm in the field every single day, which is why I left Red Cross, because I wanted this. I wanted to see that if you mm -hmm. give us $1, it makes it all the way to the family. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love that. Why is LA your base? Is that just strategically, is that a good place to be for donations? Why, why live there? I'm just curious. Um, because after, why well, I lived here all my life. Since I came to the U.S., so okay, I haven't. Okay. Yeah, since yes. I graduated, I just okay. moved here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No particular reason. <laughs> <laughs> but you got family, friends, all that. I mean, you have. Yeah. Yeah, I have. Okay. I have a good support structure. Yeah, and then Mexico is really close to LA, so we get to go there every every two weeks. Yeah. Very good. Last question. I know we're almost out of time. And by the way, I just really appreciate your passion. Everything you're doing um, is really special. Thank you. You know, yeah. thank you for thank you for what you're doing. I, you know, a lot of people, we all just go through our lives, you know, here in the US, you know, we go to our little jobs and we come home and make dinner and we watch our little TV shows and we meet our friends down at the bar and we don't even think about it. Right. We just don't even think about a child somewhere using the restroom in some some ditch because there's no no toilet. So like we don't even think about it. And and uh and I think more people should be involved and understand where the needs are and donate mindfully. Like you said, we all, we all could do a much better job. So thank you for everything you're doing. And one more time for the listeners, GGIUSA.org. I want to ask you one last question, Mana. If you, I mean, I already know what your core purpose is, right? Cause we've been talking about it for an hour, but if you had to, define it in like a sentence like a like like one sentence for mana's overall core purpose in life what is that what does that sound like my say that again ask your question again yeah what what is your if you had to define your core purpose in life like what is your overall core purpose in a sentence what does that sound like i think it's in one word it's empowerment 
Mm. I like okay. the word empowerment because that's more sustainable. And you if I have to put right. that in one sentence, it would be, I believe in uh, bringing a hand up, not a hand out. I love that. And you talked a lot about that during the conversation. Thank you. You, you really, you've educated me a bunch and I'm sure a lot of the listeners too. So really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for sharing your story on the Riderplex podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me.